Good morning. This morning I'll be reading 2 John 1, 1 through 6. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. This is the word of the Lord. My name's Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us at Sojourn. We have uh, continued on with the writings of John. We finished 1 John, and now we're moving on to the other letters of John. We're now in the two smallest books of the New Testament, 2 John, which is only outdone, or, or I should say uh, less done, less words than, than 2 John is, 3 John, which will come in a few weeks. Somehow we managed to take one of the shortest books in the New Testament and divide it into two different sermons, which is what we're doing this morning, half of 2 John. Now, when we began 1 John, uh, I, I think we started, I started a tradition that I want to continue. We knelt in prayer uh, as we started, because we, we recognize here at Sojourn, when we enter into these books together, this is such an important time for us together as we uh, come before the Word together and work through things. Sometimes it takes two weeks, sometimes a lot more to work through books together. So as it is an important time, I want to continue that tradition we might have to do it in a couple more weeks since these books are short, but if you are comfortable and able, would you just kneel with me in prayer as we turn to Second John? Father, it's beautiful sound to hear your people who have your word open before them kneel in prayer before you. And we pray that this sight is pleasing to you and brings you honor. We come before your word because we, as your people, need it. We need to be instructed by it, equipped, changed, transformed. And that doesn't happen by uh, the words of man or manipulating uh, the lights or the sound. It happens by your word. And God, you send out your word and you promise that it doesn't return void, that it's going to have its uh, intended purpose. And so we pray that it would water our lives and bring about the change and transformation that, that we need. God, send out your word this morning and use it greatly to mold us and make us into the image of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If I were to give you just two words to describe what, what binds Christians together, two words to kind of describe the, the community uh, of Christian fellowship, two words uh, to, to kind of define what kind of makes up what's going on here, I think it would be tough to beat these two words, truth and love. And, and you saw, as we read this passage 
this morning that these two words are often repeated and on the lips of John as he writes starting in 2 John. These two words are plastered into John's letters and especially into these first six verses here of 2 John that he writes to these believers. He writes to encourage and affirm and challenge the church, challenge believers to be a community of truth and love, to be a people who walk in the truth and who walk in love with one another. Now, when we turn to 2 John, there's, there's a lot of overlap of, of words and content with 1 John. The, the setting is similar, the, the content is similar, the author is the same, but it's a different form of letter. This is a personal letter. First John might have been a letter that was going out to a specific group of readers, but then it was going to be circulated to other congregations. This one is a little bit more personal, directed at a church. Certainly it could have been passed around as well, but, but this is from a little bit of a different angle. Whereas in First John, you had him writing to a group of believers, a church that false teachers and antichrists had gone out of, the, the vantage point has changed in Second John to where we're now looking at a group of people, a, a church that he writes to, to where the, the false teachers could, could come in and speak to. So it's a little bit of switch of vantage point here. And in the opening verses of 2 John, they have this standard greeting that was kind of missing from 1 John, a standard greeting of a personal letter. He says in verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children. So he addresses them. Now, unlike 1 John, John never identifies himself as the author. Here he identifies himself, but he doesn't identify himself as John. <laughs> he says he's the elder. Now, elder is the most common word in the New Testament for the, the pastoral role or the pastoral office. And in the New Testament, elders are those who exercise authority and oversight in the local church. They're, they're shepherds in the local church who, who lead the sheep, who, who take care of the sheep, who, who feed the sheep, who, who watch over the sheep, protect them. They have oversight over the sheep. That's what the elder does. And John likely uses this title because as an apostle, although he's not an elder of this local church, as an apostle he has some similar responsibilities as a local church pastor or elder. He has similar sense of authority and oversight as one who maybe had even preached the gospel to these people, planted this church, and now is trying to help and instruct them. But when we see there is an article, the, the elder, and when we see the article there, we need to be careful with what we do with that. Articles are used for all sorts of different things in Greek, and this article is not communicating that John somehow thinks that he is more prominent than all other elders, or that he is in a position above all others. You see this in, and you do introductions on uh, like NFL or NBA, like if they say they're from a certain university, they'll say, I'm from the Ohio State University. Like, they are being like that. John is, John is not. He is not trying to say, I am, I am the elder. The elder instead, I think, is communicating that he is well known to them. Uh, it's like uh, there's a time in Jesus' life when they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? And they're not saying like, well, Joseph is the carpenter. Everybody's heard of it. He's world-renowned. They're just saying, hey, you know the carpenter, right? We, we're all familiar with him. We know him. Isn't that his son? And, and this is kind of the way I think John is using the elder here. He's like, I'm the elder. You, you guys know me. I'm familiar to you. You're familiar to me. His familiarity with them and to them becomes more clear as he writes. And he, he uses all this kind of familiar language, close language that seems like, again, this is backing up, that he, he knows them well and they know him. And here's who he writes to, to the elect lady and her children. 
Again, John, I mean, a little bit vague here, like, not very specific in any of his titles that he's handing out here in this personal letter. And so there are all sorts of, of guesses of, of what he is doing here and who he's writing to. This could be anything from an actual woman, an elect of God lady, and her actual physical children. But that seems a little bit strange that he wouldn't give any sort of name whatsoever. Third John, as we, when we get to there, we, John has no issues with writing people to people directly using their names. So it seems a bit odd to write a personal letter and then to not use any names. Uh, he has no problems with that specifically, especially in other places. So I think more likely it is a, a metaphorical way of addressing a local church and its members. God's people throughout the scripture are often referred to as a woman or a bride. You think about the book of Hosea. Here's the people of God. Is this, this woman that is to be gone after? Or you think about Ephesians chapter 5, where you, where you see there, there's this kind of correlation between a husband and his love and care for his wife, and, and Christ and his love and care for his church. And so there's this correlation between the two. Or you can think about Revelation, where uh, he, the bridegroom is making his bride, the church, his people ready. And so there's all sorts of this woman and bride language throughout the scripture to speak of God's people, to speak of God's church. In John, in First John, we saw this over and over again, John regularly used the word children to refer to believers. And so it makes sense to think, when he talks to this elect lady, to think about the church, God's chosen people and her, her children, its members, the people that make up that church as we go through. I think that as you think through 2 John, John's language is more appropriate for referring to a church and its members than for an actual lady and her physical children, and the content makes more sense, especially looking in verse 13. He says in verse 13 that the children of your elect sister greet you. Again, I think that makes much more sense to think of this as a local church and a local church greeting one another, and, and perhaps it's even John's old, uh, own local church that he's saying, hey, this elect lady, this, this church that I'm a part of, wants to send you greetings as well. Now, I don't know why he does this. He doesn't tell us. Perhaps it's a way in, in, a, in a time of, of turmoil and persecution of, of different problems going up. Perhaps it's a way to protect himself and his riders uh, should the message be intercepted along the way. We don't know. Either way, we know that this is a group that John loves. This is what he says. Whom I love, the select lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. Now truth refers here to the truth of, of the Christian message, the truth of the gospel that's centered on the person and work of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done and what it then makes them and creates of them as the unique people of God. We know that John has said of Jesus that John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of, what, grace and truth. Or in John chapter 14, verse 6, these are the words of Jesus. He says, I am the way and, what, the truth. Or, or Jesus is praying to his Father in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, and he says, he prays for disciples, he prays for the church, and he says, sanctify them in the truth. And what's the truth? Your word is truth. And so we see that John has used truth in several ways. Jesus is this truth embodied. He is the one who is the word, the, the ultimate revelation, the ultimate revealing and manifestation of God who gives eternal life to all who would receive him. And the very message of the person and work of Jesus that this elect lady and her children have received is truth. And it's in that truth that John loves them and writes to them. 
In other words, he loves them in a way that's consistent with the gospel. He loves them in a way that's consistent with the word. He loves them in a way that's consistent with life in Christ. And it's that truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, that bound John to this church. His love for them is in sync with the truth, not out of step from it. And if readers of 2 John have a somewhat similar setting, which I think is likely, to the readers of 1 John, would have been a similar time period, maybe some similar kind of distractions and problems going on, I think it's likely, then this is an important affirmation to say that I love you in the truth. Because you remember, in 1 John the setting was that these false teachers, the ones that he would go on to say are liars and antichrists, have gone out from among you, and indeed, what do they do? They don't love the Christians. They don't love the church. John says over and over again in 1 John, you need to love one another. And, and if you don't love one another, then that's a display, a sign that you are not in the truth. Here he says, no, I love you in the truth. Think about the false teachers that have gone out. They were loveless and proclaiming a different Jesus. In other words, they weren't concerned with the revelation of God. They weren't concerned with the truth of the gospel. They don't love other believers. And John says, no, I love you in the truth. And my love for you is no compromise of the truth. I haven't compromised on who Jesus is or the truth of who God has revealed himself to be, but is in sync with the truth, in sync with the gospel, in sync with life in Jesus. And his love isn't the only love like that. As he continues in verse 1, he says, Whom I love in the truth, and get this, not only I, but also all who know the truth. Again, what an affirmation from an aged apostle writing to his beloved children, beloved church, that, that I love you in the truth, but, but it's not only me. Uh, if, if there are others who know the truth, they love you in the truth as well. With the false teachers going out and saying, a different Jesus and lacking love for Christians, John says and affirms them that I love you in the truth, and not only I do, but all those who have the truth, they love you in the same way. The, the doubts and the fears that may have been in their minds uh, from these false teachers that were in their midst or were circling around them are, are kind of targeted here by John. Those who know the truth are those who know and accept the reality of Jesus and the gospel, and those who know the truth are far from loveless toward others who know the truth. That's, if they're loveless towards other believers, that is a sign, John would say, of their lack of knowledge of the truth. No, any who know the truth will in turn recognize others who know the truth and love them. And here's why, verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Truth is not just mere data or some sort of stale facts that they have gotten a hold of and somehow agree with. Truth is a living gospel of the living Jesus that has gotten a hold of them, that has gripped them. This is why it abides in and is with them forever. This abiding, this shared truth binds them together as Christians, binds them together as believers, and leads, to, leads them to love one another as a community, as Christians. And so, in other words, the, the truth doesn't jeopardize or diminish or downplay their love, but the truth actually compels their love. It strengthens their love. It makes their love for one another unique. You, you probably hear ads these days of uh, insurance companies, AT&T, bundle and save. You know, put your coverages together and you're going to save. 
Uh, in other words, if you separate them, you, you could be more cost, but let's put them all together and we can save you some money. Here's what John does. He bundles truth and love and he brings them together and he says, this is going to be better for you. you these are the things that bind community, that make you a loving place. It's the binding of, of truth and love that strengthens and keeps and compels fellowship one another. And here's the reality is that separating truth and love is tempting. In the Old Testament, it's all through the Old Testament, there's this great story in, in 1 Kings chapter 22. This is Ahab, king of Israel. He's not a good king. And Jehoshaphat, he's kind of a good king in, in uh, Judah. And they're kind of trying to combine forces to, to go against their enemies. And Ahab has 400 prophets. And they're all saying, yeah, go to war. We're going to win this thing. And Jehoshaphat's like, hey, is there a prophet of the Lord around? Um, that we could ask, and he says, yeah, there's this guy, Micaiah, but man, he, I hate him. He always says evil things about me, and he did, and so they do call Micaiah, and, and what do you do? Like, he, he, he says, yeah, you shouldn't go. You're going to die, and they're like, see, I told you that he always says horrible things about me, but you notice what's going on here. You have 400 people, two kings together. They're in unity, right? Let's go to war. Let's be a nation again. Let's, let's bind this thing together and let's go take them the out, the enemies of the people of God. And then you have one solo guy over here that's actually willing to speak the truth. It would be tempting to think like, man, do we need the truth? Because we're all together over here. 400 prophets? And this is something that we all kind of think that we should do anyway? It makes a lot of sense. And so they separated truth and love. They did go to war. It didn't go well. Or we could think about Jeremiah chapter 5. In Jeremiah chapter 5, it begins with saying, like, go find someone in the public square who cares about truth, who seeks truth, and they're not found. And it ends in chapter 5 with saying, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. What is it? The prophets? Again, plural. There's lots of them. They prophesy falsely, and the priests, they rule at their direction. So everybody's on board here. We're all one. My people, they love it. They love to have it so. So you see it. Here's the love. We're all together. We love one another. We're all in the same direction. We're moving together. But it's not true. And what will you do when the end comes? And the end will come. And the end was judgment. Indeed, in Jeremiah, he goes on to say in Jeremiah chapter 9 that it's falsehood and not truth that was strong in the land. They've separated truth and love. And isn't this a temptation today? Don't we hear it all over today? That you can love well, or perhaps even love best, by downplaying or diminishing the truth. Say things like, well, I am who I am, and you are who you are, and the best way to love me is just by accepting me for who I am. And we know what that means is that we're separating truth from that. We're being asked to say, you receive me for who I am apart from whatever true thing is out there. Or we hear things like, well, that's your truth, and this is my truth, and mine is different than yours, and we all will just be better off if we just accept that you can have your truth, and I can my, have my truth, and that that's okay, and let's just accept it, and actually, if we do just accept that, then we're going to have a more loving place, a more accepting place. Or we hear, uh, there's this mountain to God, and there's lots of paths that go up this mountain, but all of them lead to the same God, so there's no use fussing or fighting over which path people take to get to this God. 
and we'd all do better and get along better and be more loving in this world, coexist better, if we just accept that, which we know, according to even all of these religions that would say they have a path to God, that that would be a denial of some of their truth claims. It's the downplay of truth for the sake of love, which sounds really good, doesn't it? Like, just forget about it for the sake of love. We just want to be more loving to one another. Let's just accept one another. That sounds good. But without the truth, where does it lead? To ruin and disaster and judgment and destruction. And it's easy to take shots at the world and say, oh, they're doing this. They're they're separating truth and love. But the same temptation is in Christian community too. Too often, we think that we can love well or love best by downplaying truth. What do we do when we find out that one brother or sister is walking in sin? Does the truth have something to say there? If we run to gossip, if we run towards escape and avoiding or are indifferent, perhaps we don't love in the truth. When we're sinned against, is it the gospel that challenges and compels us to move toward one another in love? Is it truth that moves us toward one another? Or do we seek refuge in the message of revenge? Or escape from it? Or withdraw from community? All those would be ways of downplaying, diminishing the truth of the gospel. Do we hold back with encouraging with gospel truth when others are struggling? Or do we speak truth? Or is there another message that's more readily on our lips than than gospel truth? What do we encourage with? What do we exhort with? What do we challenge with? What do we live out in front of and with one another? Is it truth? Are living according to what's true, speaking according to what's true? You see, Christian community thrives on the courage of loving honesty with one another. And it dwindles with the fluff of worldly wisdom that would separate being loving and being truthful. Our community with one another will be strengthened, will be challenged, will grow and be kept as we hold the truth up to one another, live it out with one another, speak it to one another, because we can't love one another well without truth. You might know the great love chapter of the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13. Do you know what it has to say about truth? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, love doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing. What does it rejoice with? It rejoices with the truth. Love and truth, they go together, they belong together, they are bound together, and they they bind us together as community, they strengthen us as community. So do we love one another in the truth? Because the truth both abides in us and will be with us forever. Well, after these brief words of truth and love, John finally gives the standard greeting of a letter in verse 3. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and in love. 
What we know from this greeting is that John understands that there's a clear source of grace and mercy and peace, and the clear source is God, but notice his emphasis that he puts on this here, perhaps maybe even a, a tipping of the hat to the false teachers that he's combating in this situation and scenario. He says it's not just God the Father, but it's also his son, Jesus Christ. That's the source of grace and mercy and peace. John said that Jesus was, John 1.14, full of grace. He heard Jesus say in John chapter 14, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, not that kind of peace, my peace. Or he heard Jesus say in John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He heard and saw it lived out, grace and, and mercy and peace. He, he knew the source of those things, and the source of them was God himself in flesh, Jesus Christ. And he says, that, that's not just mine, because I was a unique disciple of Jesus and saw all these things. He said, those, brothers and sisters, church, those are ours in Christ. And he adds that these, this grace and this mercy and peace, what does he say? They're in truth and love. Does that mean that grace and mercy and peace are accompanied by truth and love? Or you experience grace and mercy and peace in truth and love? Or, or maybe that truth and love are the effects of the blessings of grace and mercy and peace? I don't know. Maybe a combination of all of those. But here's what we do know. That truth and love are certainly central to John's message. Part of what he wants the church to know and be about. And so he continues after saying again in truth and love with verse 4 that I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, John, he was around for the life and ministry of Jesus. He, he got to see with his own eyes and look on with amazement as the most unlikely characters that they would encounter were changed and transformed by the truth. He would have seen the Gadarene demoniac who had been possessed by a legion of demons come and scream out before Jesus and Jesus completely change and transform that man by the word of his mouth. He would have seen how Matthew, a, a hated tax collector, started following Jesus and, and taking on his life and, and suffering for Jesus. He would have known Zacchaeus who, who would have been the scum of scum in their eyes. Give possessions away because now he loves Jesus. He would have known of Mary Magdalene and her life before and, and kind of the scandalous of her living and, and known how Jesus had transformed her. He would have heard with his own ears the man on the cross turn to Jesus and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All of these John saw changed by truth. Even this church that he writes to he, he likely would have seen them. He might have been the one that went and proclaimed the gospel to them. Those who are walking in darkness have seen the light, and the light came through the truth of the gospel message as he shared it with them and planted a church down. And here's what he does. He doesn't seem to take it for granted at one second that the truth has taken root in their lives and changed what was once darkness and turned it into light. He rejoices he, he is gripped by the miracle of it all. And so he says, I rejoice in this because the reality is, is that if anybody is walking in the truth, we need to know that it should not be. They were slaves into the darkness, slaves to their sin. And yet the light came and shone in the darkness. 
and transformed the things that were once dark and without hope and brought them into glorious light. And he doesn't take it for granted. Think of the joy that he would have had as he sees those who were once lost in their sin, once lost in the darkness, start to look like Jesus and walk like Jesus and and take on the truth like Jesus. It would have reminded him of Jesus himself, like, oh, the way you're living, the way you're walking, that's, that's just like Jesus used to do. Like how, how much encouragement and joy would he have gotten from that? The one that he had loved, you say, you're starting to look like him. What joy is there in that? But notice that they're just not walking however. He didn't say, I rejoice that you're walking in the truth and that it's then vaguely defined. He, he knows, he says, I rejoice that you're walking in the truth. In other words, I rejoice that you're walking in a way that's consistent with the gospel consistent with what's been revealed about God, consistent with the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Perhaps he has 1 John 3 in mind. In chapter 3, verse 23, he says, verse 4, he talked about commands, and here's the command, 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus. I think he's saying you're you're walking in that belief. And not only that we believe in the name of his son Jesus, but we love one another just as he has commanded us. And so they're walking in a way that's consistent with that command to love Jesus, believe in Jesus, and to love one another. And so walking in the truth is is not some vague reality. It's believing in Jesus and loving one another as he goes on to remind them. Look back in verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning... That we love one another. Now perhaps the most memorable teaching to John was the night that Jesus was betrayed. In the hours leading up to his betrayal by the son of destruction, Judas. You remember what Jesus said on that night? I'm sure it was etched on John's mind. John chapter 15, we read a few of those words. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Etched on John's mind is Jesus' love. And so when he thinks about this command to love one another, surely he he goes back and thinks about how Jesus had commanded that same thing, that they love one another and, and it's to be love that he saw displayed in Jesus, etched on his mind, would have been Jesus' love, where he then went and laid down his life on a cross for his friends, just hours after saying what he said in John 15. And now John writes to this elect lady, this chosen one, this chosen bride of Christ, and he relays the same message. You need to love one another just as he commanded There was never then a conception in John's mind that there could be a Christian community apart from Christian love. That they were always 
meant to be together, belong together. There was never a, a Christian community that could have truth and not have love, that could receive the gospel and not love one another. Those always belong together. His conception of love wasn't some sentimental, vague thing, but a vivid, sacrificial image. This is how you love one another, the way Jesus has loved us in this sacrificial death for the good of others. That's the way John would have conceived of love. And he says, this is the command that we need to follow. Not writing you a new commandment, but the one you had from the beginning. Because we've never conceived of community apart from love, I'm saying that you need to continue in that love and love one another. Although John knew that they heard it in the beginning, perhaps he was the one that even gave it, along with the Christian message, the gospel, perhaps he was the one that encouraged them right from the start to love one another. And although they had heard it at the beginning, John has no problem or uh, hesitation whatsoever to continue to beat the drum and lo- to, of love for one another. And he says it again and again and again. Love one another, just as you heard at the beginning. You see, John knew after seeing Jesus bleeding, dying, sacrificial love, that no matter where his audience is and their amount of love for one another, that there's room to grow. That they have room to grow into the love that Jesus has displayed, the love that they can display to one another. That there is still beauty to be shown in their love for one another. And so he challenges them and tells them, I'm going to continue to tell them, love one another. Apparently, John never tires of reminding them to love one another, and apparently, the church never lacks the need of that reminder. And so he says it again. Now, one would think that taking part of a loving community that that sacrifices and bleeds and dies, if necessary, for the good of others would, would be desirable, but that's honestly not often the community that is wanted. And I think that one author says this well. Although many Christians claim to want genuine community, many want it on their own terms, when it's convenient and when when it demands nothing from them. What they want isn't the church community, but a country club where they pay their dues for services rendered. They want to be served without having to serve anyone else. Real community forces us to die to ourselves and get over ourselves so that we might love one another as ourselves. This is something that should characterize Christian community. That we die to ourselves and get over ourselves so that we might love one another. That would look like Jesus. If in community you're not being forced to die to yourself, then perhaps you're not in Christian community. I mean, how different is country club love than Golgotha love? How far short of loving like Jesus is this convenient, when it's okay for me, when it demands nothing for me kind of love? Real community forces us to die. That's the love of Christ that John is commanding here, that Jesus commanded of him. Love one another as I have loved you. That's what he's saying. You need to go out and die. There's a loving community. There's Christian community. It's not, if you're not being forced to die to yourself, then maybe we don't have a real Christian community. 
Notice that there are no qualifiers for this command to love one another. He doesn't say, love those who you really mesh with. You know, like your personalities kind of, they don't clash, they really go together. Find a group of people like that and, and live community and love them. Live in community with them. He doesn't say, you know what, go to the place where you're the most comfortable. He says, love one another. And, of course, we know, right? He's not saying everything about love here, right? Jesus told us, uh, love your enemies, even. Hey, we, we could go further with love, but he's just talking within the community. And, and the, the qualifier for love within the community for one another is that they share the truth with you, and that's it. Do, do they share that truth? Does that truth abide in them? Is it with them? Then, then love them. Oh, maybe they seem like an enemy. Oh, we love them, too. Love them. And Jesus led the way. He showed what love was like. He embodied it. He laid down his life in love. And his love then creates a loving community. That's the only kind of community it does create. If it doesn't create a loving community, then it hasn't been created by him. It's a loving community with truth. The truth is in us. And if the truth is in us, then his love is in us, and his love then can be displayed in us and through us. It should be displayed through us. And it's that kind of community of love, of a community that's displaying Jesus that John is encouraging. And he goes a little bit further to make sure he describes it well, because he says in verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Again, John doesn't leave love to be defined just however. Hey, love one another. Figure it out, you know, like, define love however it is defined in your region, and we'll go with that. Love one another. He doesn't do that. He says in definite terms, here's what love looks like. It is shaped by this truth. It is shaped by Scripture. It is shaped by commandments. And so one author says, any action toward the other person that violates God's commandments, God's commands, no matter how well-intended or how, how romantically inclined, is not love. Man, do we need to hear that. It does not matter how well-intended it is. If it violates God's commands, it is not love. Love rejoices with the truth. It does not rejoice in false doing. Any action, he continues, that encourages or helps that person avoid obedience to God's commands, no matter how nice the motivation, is not love. Man, don't we need that in Christian community. We need that in marriages. We need that in parenting. We need that as we live life with one another, that we have to love in a certain way because love looks a certain way. It doesn't look however we want it to look. No matter if we are well-intentioned, which we're probably not as well-intentioned as we'd like to think, no matter how good the motivation, which again, it's probably not as good as we'd like to think, if it violates God's commands, it is not love. If it helps a person avoid obedience, it is not love. John says this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Now, John doesn't zero in on all right, which commandments are we talking about. But in verse 6, he goes on to reference commandments. So let's read on. And this is the commandments. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. I think 
that when he does that, he, he does narrow in a bit. Because what is the commandment that he's repeated often that Jesus had given to him? That you love one another. As Christ has loved, you need to also love one another. It's all over. And we also know that if we love one another in the way that Christ has commanded us to love one another, that that actually is the fulfillment of the commands, right? That we will be fulfilling the commands if we're going to love one another according to the commands. If we're going to love one another the way Jesus commands us, we will fulfill the commands. And so it seems like he's, he's narrowing in on that. It seems that John's emphasis is that the love that Jesus showed, sacrificial, dying love, is, is not just a love that's out there, but is a love that is actually practical and to be followed, to be shown, to be walked in. He continued, verse 6, right? This is love, that we walk according to his commandment, and this is a commandment just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should do what? You should walk in it. Cross-like love is, is on the ground. It's not just up there as an idea or concept. It's on the ground. It is living and active. It has actual social expression. It is active in relationships with others. It's really something that can be walked in. It's something that can be verified. It's not lip service. Something that you can see done. Something that you can do. And he says if, if one walks in the way that Jesus walked, loved as Jesus loved, then love is going to be according to the commandments. So church, do we live and love like Jesus? Does our love take the, the shape of the scripture, of the word? Is the word forming it and shaping it? Does our love hit the ground in our relationships in real time? With real actions? Does it look like Jesus' actions? You see, when we walk in love, our lives are consistent with the Word of God. If our lives are inconsistent with the Word of God, then we're not walking in love. When we walk in love, when our lives are consistent with the Word and truth, these beautiful words, truth and love, they meet and belong together, and we walk in a way that is in accordance with the commands of God. And this is the type of community, this is the type of church that Jesus paved the way for that he made a way for, that he was the way for. You see, his love is the example for what this should look like in real relationships. But his love isn't just the example for those relationships. His love is the actual power for those relationships. You see, his love wasn't mere lip service. He didn't just resound from heaven, I love you. He didn't just have good intentions. He had practical, on the ground, on the cross, love. And aren't we thankful that he did? That it didn't just resound from heaven, these love notes written in the sky, I love you, but that it hit the ground and was willing to die? And because that's true, man, think about the truth and love and how they can meet in us. Because his love hit the ground and went to the cross, and now abides in us, don't we have all that we need to love one another and to walk in the truth? We have Him. He abides in us. He's with us forever. And so we can walk according to His commands. We can walk in love. We can be a community of truth and love together because Jesus was love on the ground. Church, that's what John calls us to in Second John. These powerful words that bind us together in community. Truth and love. That's the kind of community we need to be. Now one of the commandments that Jesus gave to his church was to 
take a meal in remembrance of what he has done. We're remembering not only the, the example that he set before us of love, but we're remembering the, the power and the source of our love for one another. And it's him. We can love one another by taking the supper, by obeying the commands. We're reminding ourselves, Jesus is everything to me. His blood poured out, his blood, body broken over is what saves me. It is what moves me to live life in community with others who we share the truth with. And so we love one another by taking this meal in faith. If you can't take this meal in faith, if you can't take this meal by, because you trust in Jesus fully for your life, then we say, don't take this meal. Instead, we need you to take Jesus. We want you to put him before you and say, this is the one you need to believe in. Don't take this meal as a family meal. But if you're part of the family, one way we can encourage one another is by taking this meal in faith. By laying down our animosity and enmity that might exist between us and moving toward one another in love by first moving toward Jesus and then letting him push us outward toward one another. So if you're part of the family, if you trust in Jesus, then come and take this, this meal and be reminded of what Jesus has done for you and that he's going to come back and one day take his beloved bride to be with him forever. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for moving towards us first in love. This is love, not that we first loved you, but that you loved us and gave your son as a propitiation for our sins. God, may that love compel our love, not only for you, but for one another. Would you please, by the truth that binds us together, strengthen our love for one another. May we, as your bride, be a beautiful display of your love to one another and to a watching world. May we be a place that cares deeply about truth, that knows that not only are we holding on tightly to truth, but in a way, and in a much more real way, truth is holding on to us. And may we walk according to that truth, but may we also be a community of love that cares deeply about our love for one another, that alongside the truth, we have to have love, that they go together and belong together, that they bind us, propel us, and compel us onward as community. God, may truth and love truly bind us. Father, we pray for the truth to go out, and there might be those who are walking in darkness, and we pray for the truth to shine the light into that darkness and transform. We pray for the love that is seen and displayed among believers to actually be part of the message that we are giving to unbelievers even today during this time that they might know your love and come to faith in you. God, we take this meal in faith, trusting that Jesus is all that we need, Jesus is enough for us, and that Jesus is going to one day come back and this weary world is going to rejoice as he finally and fully gathers his family and takes them to be with him forever. We look forward as we take this meal to the meal that's to come one day. So Father, may we take this meal in faith, in hope, and in great joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Guilty of every crime, but you took my place and you did my time. How can I thank you? Thank you, Lord. My Spread the table in the wilderness. Sour the waters, you fill my cup. 